okay? Uh, so open those Bibles, have them ready, have your app open, whatever. But uh, we are going through this four-week uh, time period where we're looking at our why we exist statement. And I think this is really important. Uh, we do this every now and again just to come back to the basics to remind ourselves why are we here? What's the point of us gathering together here on a Sunday? What are we after? Because again, like I said last week, if you're anything like me, uh, you get into these points where you can kind of feel like you're going through the motions and all of a sudden you're sitting here and you have this thought. You're like, what is the point of all this? And so I think it's really important that we come back to these places where we go, why are we here? Why do we exist? And this is exactly what we're trying to do. And last week, uh, we looked at the statement that we exist as a church and every church exists as a church to make disciples of all nations. And so if this is your church home and uh, you weren't here last week, I actually want to encourage you to go back and listen to that um, via iTunes or wherever else, just so we're all on the same page. Uh, but today, guys, we're looking at the second phrase in our statement of why we exist, and it should be probably on the screen here, and that is that we exist uh, to be a community who is in awe of the gospel, community in awe of the gospel. Uh, this is our why we exist statement. It's up here every week when we end and we dismiss. This is up here for our reminder that we exist to make disciples of all nations who are in awe of the gospel or embodying the gospel and who are giving their lives away because of the gospel. And so today we're talking about being in awe of the gospel. Uh, the word awe specifically, guys, uh, it definitely implies some form of potential experience. Uh, it could imply to us uh, just some sense of like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, biblically, it could you know, be a mixture of fear and wonder. Uh, but awe definitely implies the idea of worship. Worship. Uh, we are worshiping beings. We all are, all of us. And therefore, this is something, there, there is actually something in this world that has caught your attention this morning, so much so that whether you realize it or not, you've decided to give your life to that thing. You've decided to give your life to that thing. When we say that we want to see a community in awe of the gospel, we are saying that we are in awe of first and foremost God. We're not just sitting here this morning saying we are in awe of some story, but we are first and foremost in awe of the main character of that story, who is God. We look to God and we go, wow, he is amazing. If I get bored with God, there's not a problem with God, there's a problem with me, okay? We are in awe of God, but, but secondly, we are in awe of what he chose to do for us in Christ Jesus. It is mind-blowing. He sent Jesus into the world to reconcile us to God, to bring us back to God. And so you might not realize it yet this morning, but there is an actual war that is going on in your heart and it is a war for awe. It is a war for awe. I suggest to you that whatever you are in awe of, it will ultimately actually shape you in, into a certain type of person. It'll make you into a certain type of person. Whatever it is that has caught your attention, that is a girl or a boy, um, or man or woman, I guess, would be more appropriate for this audience, but um, you know, uh, it could be a status, could be a state of being, like comfort or something. Uh, it could be a feeling or an experience, whatever. Whatever has caught your attention, you will worship and you will be shaped by that thing. And we desire to be a church that worships God and is shaped by the good news of Jesus. What God has done for us in Christ, you guys, it is breathtaking. It'll take your breath away. 
And it is startling, actually, to say the least. And if we catch ourselves yawning at the gospel, that doesn't mean there's something wrong or lacking in Jesus, but it's just revealing that there's something off in me. Uh, When I first saw my wife, uh, she took my breath away, right? It was breathtaking. My heart probably skipped a beat kind of thing, right? And so now, when I see my wife, if she isn't breathtaking to me, there's not a deficiency in her, but there's something probably wrong with me. I've said to you before, when I went to the Grand Canyon for the very first time, I had only seen it on like desktop wallpapers, which back in this day, because this was like college, that was very pixelated, not very good photos. But nonetheless, I'm like, yeah, who cares about the Grand Canyon? I saw the Grand Canyon. I literally had my breath taken away. I had to like, like catch my breath, and I was just, you know, all wrapped up in the Grand Canyon. But now if I go and see the Grand Canyon, and it's not that way, there's nothing wrong with the Grand Canyon. It's still just as amazing. There's something just potentially wrong with me, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with God. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. There is potentially something wrong with our heart when we don't have any form of awe ever when we consider him. There's a war going on in our hearts for awe. And so how do you fight this war for awe in your heart? Well, we fight it by considering something bigger. You fight for the war of awe in your heart by considering something better, something otherworldly, something abnormal. And I can think of nothing more abnormal or otherworldly than considering how God has dealt with our sin, how God has responded to you when you and I have mistreated him. Here's why this is so jaw-dropping and needed for us to fight to consider this morning, okay? So all of us, all of us, at some time or another, to varying degrees, guys, we struggle All of us, we struggle with the fear that perhaps God has not dealt fully and finally with our sin. We still have these questions like, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's still going to hold it against me. And so our sin haunts us, our sin taunts us, and it wants us to believe that there's simply no way God could look with love and approval on us. And so you and I often fail to believe what God himself says that he has done with our sins. And what consumes us is what we have done by our sinning. What consumes us is what we have done by sinning. What ought to consume us is grateful meditation on what God has done with our sinning. And when we doubt or we elevate ourselves or we elevate our sin, especially above the cross of Jesus, it stomps out our awe. And we don't just, we can't find it there. And you will actually start looking for your awe somewhere else, something lesser, and you'll distract yourself in some way. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want us to fight to, to stop distracting ourselves and to stop having our awe stamped out. And we're going to do that, we're going to fight to do this by looking at what God himself says he has done with our sin, as well as what he doesn't and never will do with our sin. And so there's 10 things that I want to show us in Scripture that Scripture is very vivid about and clear about of what God says he has done with your sin, if you know Jesus. And I want us to look at three things that he never will do and doesn't do, okay? Now, before we begin, I just need to keep one thing in mind with all of us in this room. Everything I'm about to say about what God has done with your sin only applies to you if you have repented of your sin and turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need you to save me. 
If that's you, this totally applies to you. If that is not you this morning, I pray that as these scriptures are spoken over you and during our time together this morning, you would see your need for a Savior and that you would turn to Jesus this morning. And if you want to do that, I would love to talk to you. I'm, I'm sure countless people in this room would love to talk to you about that, okay? So here we go. All right, buckle up. Ten things, right? God did with your sin. Don't worry, these aren't 15 minutes on each one, all right? Don't panic. Ten things that God has done with your sin. Number one, it'll be on the screen, all these should be. He laid your sin upon His Son. He laid your sin upon His Son. Isaiah says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. And Isaiah the prophet said, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first and most important thing God has done with our sin is the fruit of this one incredibly gracious and glorious act of God. That Jesus, you guys, has voluntarily offered himself to be your substitute. To die in your place on the cross, to suffer the judgment that you actually deserved. The Father, in turn, made Jesus to be guilty of your sin and therefore liable to the punishment that you deserved. He regarded Jesus as guilty, even though Jesus was innocent. So divine justice, we know, guys, divine justice calls for the counting of our sin against us. So how in the world are we forgiven of our guilt? The answer is that God laid your sin on Jesus. Don't ever think that the love of God means that his, his justice was ignored. That's not what the love of God means. Because God is just and righteous, there must be accounting of our guilt and our sin. And because God is loving and because God is gracious, the counting and the punishment and the justice of that sin was placed upon Jesus instead of you. I mean, just imagine that you're, um, you're in Nevada, okay, and you're standing at the base of the Hoover Dam, right? That is holding back, I don't know, countless gallons of water, right? I mean, that's an, a massive amount of water. Let's just say you're standing there, and all of a sudden, the Hoover Dam just, there's an earthquake or something, you see it break open, all that countless water is just rushing towards you, right? What are you going to do? You're going to go, whoa, this is amazing, right? Is that what you're going to react with? Hope, I mean, maybe you're weird, I don't know. But I would bet that you're like, this is it, I'm toast, right? I mean, that's so much water coming at you. Death is imminent, right? right this is our life before God because He's so holy, and we are so not. But we are made to be. And what Jesus did for us in our place is He essentially functioned as if the ground were to just break open at the last second before that water hits you and swallow up every ounce of that water and see it disappear forever. Jesus hung on a cross and endured all the divine justice of God, every last drop of that water, so that you could go free, so that you could live. This is the picture and the most foundational thing that Jesus did for us. This is the first and most foundational thing that God has done for your sin. He laid it on His Son, your substitute, Jesus Christ, okay? Number two, He forgave your sin. He forgave your sin. There are dozens of passages in the Bible that say the same thing, but listen to how David puts it in Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. A few verses later, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my sin to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Let me ask you, what does it mean for God to forgive our sin? Well, honestly, it simply means that he is never going to hold your sin against you. 
In other words, when forgiveness has taken place, there no longer exists any legal or moral grounds on the basis of which God might condemn you or condemn me. The punishment that sin requires is no longer a threat because it's been laid upon someone else. It's been laid upon Jesus. But to be forgiven also means that God promises never to bring up your sin or remind you about it again or to use it against you in any way to manipulate you or threaten you to justify some action that he is going to take in his relationship with you. In other words, to have your sins forgiven means that they simply no longer register, no longer appear on God's radar. They no longer factor into any relevant or meaningful way into the relationship that we have with him. So when you are praying, God isn't sitting there thinking, um, well, man, this woman, like, really, you screwed up so much this week, right? Um, your sins are kind of clouding my mind. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm gonna, I should even listen to you right now. I mean, look at the way you've just acted all week long, right? Uh, he's not saying that based upon how you've acted this week, I'm going to therefore listen to you or not listen to you or love you or not love you. No, if you're forgiven, then your sins no longer exist in the mind of God to shape or to determine how he feels about you or what he does or does not do for us in response to our prayers. This is amazing. This is so different than you and I and the way we treat each other. Number three, he cleaned your sin. All through Scripture, sin is portrayed as this dark and ugly and dirty thing. It just like soils everything. It's a, it's a deep, dark, seemingly awful stain that we have on our, our souls. That's what the Bible kind of describes it as. It discolors, it distorts everything. Yet God appeals to us in Isaiah chapter 1, 18 with these amazing words. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I mean, just think about King David. If you know anything about King David, you know he wasn't as awesome as he's often portrayed as sometimes. We're not downplaying David or anything. But he, like, committed adultery, had an affair. And then to cover up, he uh, had that lady's husband killed, murdered, taken out. I mean, those are like two grievous type sins, right? I mean, just imagine the filth or the dirt that David would have felt, and he goes to God, and he cries out to God in Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly of my sin, cleanse me of it. And again in verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me just ask you, have you ever like, uh, been hanging out with somebody and they look at you and they go, hey, you, you have like a bug on you. You have a bug on you. And there really is a bug on you and they swipe it off of you. You look down, you see them kill it, right? Sorry if, you, if that offends you, okay? But they kill it, they're saving your life. You look at the bug, it's dead, right? Have you ever had this happen to you? Hopefully if you're a human, right? Or likely, I guess. What happens for the next 20 minutes? You're going like this, right? You're still doing this kind of stuff. You're still feeling like there's a bug on you, even though you know, even though you've seen that that bug is brushed off and even killed and destroyed, right? We still can feel like there's a bug on us. In the same way, when God has forgiven you and cleaned you of your sin, when you have been made white as snow, as these verses are saying to you, we often walk around still feeling like we're dirty. And there are many of you who walked in here this morning who feel very dirty, and you're a Christian. 
and you're dwelling on something that you've done in the past that was just so awful, and maybe nobody knows about it, and so you feel just dirty. Or maybe people know about it, and they've just shamed you about it for a long time, and they've said, they've judged you, or they've called you certain names or something because of it. And yet you walk in here claiming the name of Christ over your life. You hear these words from God and we go, God, help me to believe that I am clean, that I really am no longer dirty, that you wash me, that that's who I am. I'm telling you this morning, if you're a believer and you just walk around feeling so shame-filled and dirty all the time, that is not who you are. If you are forgiven in Christ, then you are clean. That's what scriptures say God has done with you in your sin. I mean, this is, uh, this is amazing, okay? So first, God laid your sin on Christ. Secondly, He forgave our sin. Thirdly, He cleanses our sin by making us pure. Fourth, He casts your sin behind His back. Hezekiah put it this way, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You've cast all my sins behind your back. Uh, the, the imagery here is very vivid. That's really powerful. It, it's as if God takes all of your wrongs in His hand and He chucks them behind Him. And He's got a pretty good arm, okay? This isn't like dribbling down His back or something. He throws them behind His back, right? Never to see it again, never to be influenced by it again, never again to take it into consideration when He deals with you or in, in the way that He would hear your prayers, right? He doesn't cast it behind your back and say that. He casts it behind his back. Let me just consider David again. He said, my sin is always before me, Psalm 51. But when he confessed and repented, God threw it behind his back, never to see it again. God has taken your sin. He's placed it out of sight behind his back. And all he sees now when he sees you is his perfect son, Jesus. Can you believe it? This is the love that is found in God's forgiveness. Number five, he removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verse 12. You should see that one on the screen. I I really should have checked my math with you, David, before I did this, so bear with me, people. Uh, The research I did, though, said that the Hubble telescope has given us breathtaking pictures of a galaxy that is some 13 billion light years from the earth, okay? Yes, 13 billion light years. Okay, remember that a light year is six trillion miles. Uh, That would put this galaxy at 78 sextillion miles from the earth. That's 21 zeros, okay? 21. So, in case you're wondering, we go from million to to billion to trillion to quadrillion to to quintillion to sextillion. I can't even say it, David. This is pathetic, okay? So, this galaxy is 78 sextillion miles from the earth, 21 zeros, okay? So, just think about it. If you traveled, I love these kind of equations, okay? If you traveled 500 miles per hour nonstop, literally 60 minutes every hour, 24 hours in every day, seven days in every week, 52 weeks in every year with not a moment's pause or delay, you don't go to the bathroom, nothing, right? It would take you 20 quadrillion years to even get there, right? And that would only get you to the farthest point that our best telescopes have been able to even detect. Who knows, in this moment they might have found more, I don't know, okay? If the universe, you guys, is infinite, we think it is, this would be the mere fringe of what lies beyond. 
So my point, and the point of the psalmist, is that the magnitude of such a distance is a pathetically small comparison to the likelihood that you would ever be dealt with according to your sins or repaid for what you've done after you've given yourself to Jesus. So if you were even ever inclined to want to pursue your sin so that you could place yourself back underneath it and its condemning power in your life, 78 sextillion miles is an infinitely small fraction of the distance you'd have to travel to find those sins. That's the imagery that you're meant to see here. Number six, he passed over your sin. This is where we come to the seventh, eighth, and ninth things that God did with our sin, all of which uh, Lindsay read for us in Micah 7. It says this again, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So it says he passes over your transgressions. And to pass over is to pay no attention to something. It's to ignore it. It's to act as if whatever was passed over is no longer there. But let's be clear, let's take into consideration everything the Bible has said to us already. This doesn't mean that God ignores or pretends that your sin never existed. The reason God passes over our sin is because he, again, laid it on Jesus. He didn't pass over Jesus when Jesus was hanging on the cross. God lingered over Jesus when he was hanging on the cross as he poured out his justice upon him. He lingered in justice as Jesus was exposed to the judgment that you and I deserved. Now, this is why God always and forever will pass over your sin. That's why he won't linger over it, because he lingered over Jesus when he was on the cross. Number seven, he trampled your sin underfoot. This is what it says again in Micah. He says, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. And I, I love this one. It's so powerful. To trample or tread underfoot something, you guys, we know this. It's, right, it's to exert your authority over it, right? It's to put on display, right, like the victory that you've achieved over whoever or whatever that enemy might be. Might be. Right, if you trample a bug under your foot, you're like, I'm bigger than this bug, right? Like you're like, authoritative about it, right? You've defeated that awful enemy, haven't you? That's what it means to trample something under your foot. For God to tread underfoot all of our sins means that he has defeated your sin. He's trampled it under his feet. Its power over you is done away, right? Its authority to rule your life is undone. God has conquered the threat that sin possesses in your life. He has taken steps to remove its condemning power. It no longer has the capacity to steal your joy or rob your value or determine your eternal destiny. And the way in which God goes about making this point and driving it home is by asking you to envision in your mind your sin on the ground this morning and his feet just stomping all over it. That's what happened when Jesus walked out of the grave three days later. That's the image we have. He treaded upon it and he stomped it into oblivion. Number eight, he cast your sin into the sea. Again, that passage in Micah says, you will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. And the prophet Micah here draws upon Israel's history to make this point. It's really powerful. If you're an Israelite in this day, it's a really powerful point because nothing weighed more joyfully and heavily upon 
a Jewish person's mind during this time than remembering how they were freed from their slavery in Egypt and how as Moses led them out by the power of God, their enemies were falling behind them and God destroyed them in the sea. They, they were drowned in the depths of the sea when Pharaoh and his armies pursued them. So listen carefully to the language here of Exodus 15. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. So there is simply no escaping the fact that Micah is appealing to this victory of God over God's people's enemies. And, and there's no greater enemy for you and me than sin and death. And he's saying, I have taken your sin and I have cast it into the depths of the sea, forever freeing you from the guilt and the punishment of your sin. I mean, how much more graphic must God be before you enter into this like joy this morning of his forgiving love for you? All guilt is gone. He's cast into the sea. Just as he tosses your sin behind his back, he hurls them into the depths of the sea and they are lost forever. I'm pretty certain there's still parts of the sea in the depths that we have not even discovered yet. I mean, he's cast them into the depths of the sea. This is the image. I mean, who wants to go down into that thing, right? Who wants to go miles into the depths of the sea to find your sin, right? I definitely don't. I don't want to go 10 feet, right? I mean, there is not a submarine that's been made that can submerge to the depth of where he's placed your sin in this visual illustration that he's given you here in Micah. The equipment has not been found. It never will be. No one can retrieve it. God forbids it. And the, this is the quality of his forgiving love for you. Number nine, he blotted out your sin. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Psalm 51, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Have you guys ever uh, fooled around with an Etch-a-Sketch before? You guys remember these? There should be a picture on the screen very pixelated one, which is not ironic at all, okay? Um, I've probably dated myself. Maybe if you've seen the movie Elf, you know what this is, right? You have these knobs. I think there's sand or something in there, right? You turn the knobs and it draws pictures, right? I, I stated last week I'm terrible at art, so I had terrible pictures that I would make with an etch a I, I was good at the staircase. That was about it, okay? But these were like a perfect tool for me, okay? Because you could draw up whatever you want, whatever your, fits your fancy, right? But even if you're not good at it, it doesn't really matter, right? This toy was made for people like me and for people like you who are not good at it, right? Because if you don't like what you've drawn and you're going to be embarrassed by it, you don't want to show anybody, whatever, all you have to do is simply tip the screen and it all goes away. It's beautiful. Depending on how much you drew, maybe shake it a little bit, right? But you just tip the screen, whatever you drew just goes away. Right? This is a simple illustration, but I think it's a lot like what God has done with your sin, what it's saying here and blotting it out. I mean, through the course of your earthly existence and my earthly existence, we've, be honest, we've sketched a pretty ugly scenario. We've drawn up a lot of things that we wouldn't be proud of that we'd be pretty embarrassed of, right? Things of rebellion and not being grateful people, uh, jealousy, uh, lust, like we could name a bunch of stuff here. But there it is, vividly imprinted on the screen of our souls, but when we confess our sin, God's loving and gracious hand just kind of tips the toy and blots it out. 
wipes it clean. No matter how often you return to deface your life with ugly pictures of hatred or anger or pride or whatever it is, God is faithful to tip the screen. That's why 1 John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He tips the screen. All it takes is confession because it took the blood of Jesus. He paid for it. Ten, he has forgotten your sin. He quite simply refuses to remember it. Isaiah 43, I will not remember your sins. Hebrews 8, I will remember their sins no more. Uh, I have a really, I have a terrible memory, pretty bad one. I mean, uh, my wife makes fun of me because even things I, I hated in the past, I'll look back and be like, no, it was great. Like I worked at Home Depot when we were first married and I hated it. And then like a year later, I'm like, I miss Home Depot. I loved it. I love looking at Home Depot. And Liz will be like, you hated it. And I'm like, no, I don't know. Um, I just have a bad memory. Um, so you might be something like me and you're wondering like, how in the world if God truly is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything. I mean, how could he not remember my sins? I mean, would not my sins be among the things that he simply cannot not know? I mean, technically speaking, yes, God knows everything, but he is as one who chooses not to remember them. He puts your sin out of his mind. I mean, how utterly, think about just how utterly different is God from us? I mean, when people violate our rights or wrong us or they lie to us or break a promise, we make it clear to them. We say, I will never forget this. I will never forget that you did this to me. I'll remember this moment till my dying day. I'll make sure I keep this at the forefront of my mind or maybe put it in my back pocket for a rainy day. But I'm going to hold on to this one. God, on the other hand, promises never to remember. He doesn't just like misremember and look back on sort of the bad years of your life and go, I don't think they were as bad as I remember in the present time. He doesn't do what I do. He chooses not to remember them. He, he is not going to brood over your sin. That's what this is saying. He will not reflect upon it, think about it, contemplate it, analyze it, throw it in your face again. He's saying, he says, I will not remember them. I will not. Those are the 10 things God has done with your sin. But there's three things that he doesn't do with it and never will do, and they'll all be on the screen here. It says, he doesn't and never will use it to determine how he will deal with us. He doesn't and never will appeal to our sin in order to repay us. And he doesn't and never will count it or apply it against us. You see the passages there in the Psalms where this comes from. Psalm 103.10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 32.2 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32. I'm going to combine all these into one thing. And I think this is where we really get to the crux of the matter. And if you're anything like me, this is where the awe is birthed in our lives. Because we begin to see so vividly this morning how we are so unlike God. And the way God deals with us is so unlike the way that we experience life in relationship with everybody else. Let me just consider for a moment how we deal with other people. Again, we keep it fresh in our minds, people's injustices towards us. 
we nurture the memory of people's faults and failings. We, we don't want them to ever forget what they did, and we often make sure others are mindful of it as well. We seek every opportunity, even if it's secret, even if it's a secret sort of way of doing it, we make them pay for their wrongs. We, we hold it in our hearts and we hold it over their heads and we persuade ourselves that it's only fair that they be treated this way because of the way they did to me, what they did to me. But again, consider this description of God and his dealings with us, the ones that I just read that are still here on the screen, right? Our sins do not constitute the standard by which God makes his decisions on how he treats us. He does not recall or bring to the forefront of his mind or publicly announce our history of hatred and lust and greed and pride before responding to something that we've just done. He doesn't do that. Now, here's the question, though. Why does God not deal with us according to our sins? Why does he not repay us for them? Why does he not count them against us? In other words, on what grounds does he take such such breathtaking action? We really have to catch your breath. I mean, does he simply just like uh, wave a wand of mercy over your life? Uh, does he merely just shrug it off as if it weren't that big of a deal? And we were just kind of thinking it might be. Does he ignore his holiness and he's like, I'll just forgive you and I'll ignore my holiness? Does he pretend that justice doesn't really matter and that love trumps doing what's right? No, we've clearly seen the answer this morning. Hopefully you've seen it. The answer is no. God does not deal with us according to our sins because he has dealt with Jesus. What we celebrate and we take communion every week as followers of Jesus. He has dealt with Jesus according to your sins, not you according to your sins. That's why we sing that we're saved by grace alone. Because it is. It's, it's sheer grace, unmerited favor. The reason why God does not repay us according to our wrongs is because he paid his son with those injustices. What his holiness demanded, Jesus took on instead of you having to do that. God didn't casually just cast aside your sin as if it wasn't a big deal. Rather, he laid them on Jesus. And so, guys, if this is true of you, if you know Jesus and you've given your life to him, you've asked for his forgiveness, he's truly king of your life kind of thing. If this is true of you, then certainly we should be able to not hold other people's sins against them, especially if that person's a Christian. Because if that person's a Christian, that means they've been forgiven by Jesus. And we turn to that person and we go, but I'm not going to. Even though their sin is first and foremost against God and not even you. Right? If God doesn't treat us that way and doesn't hold that person's sins against them, then why would I? Why would I? Um, Just yesterday, uh, my daughter, seven, apparently was outside I'm trying to give gum to all of our neighbor kids. And so my son came in, he goes, hey, can I have gum? I was like, sure, whatever. He comes back and 30 seconds later, he goes, hey, dad, Eden's trying to sell gum to the neighbor kids. Uh, And I go, bring her in here. And I bring Eden in and I go, Eden, are you, do you have gum? She goes, yeah. Where did you get that? She's like, from the house. I said, are you selling gum to the neighbor kids? She's like, well, just for a quarter, you know? And uh, I was like, it doesn't really matter. I was like, who, you know, did you pay for that gum? She's like, no, not at all. Like, she stole it. So I was like, we'll deal with that later, okay? But as of right now, I said to her, I was like, that is my gum. Like, I paid for that gum. That's my gum. And you have it. 
And if you freely have this gum, then how in the world can you turn around and charge people for it? I was just thinking, like, that's perfectly what we're talking about this morning. If I've freely received the grace of God in mind-boggling, jaw-dropping, breathtaking ways, and I am freely and fully and finally forgiven in Christ, then how in the world do I turn around and start charging people for all of their sin against me all the time, saying I'm never going to forget this one. I'm going to hold on to this one. I'll never forgive you for that. It's impossible. It's impossible when you stare at what God has done for you in Christ, when you begin to understand how freely he has given his grace to you because of what he gave to Jesus instead. Stuff begins to do something to your heart. You begin to find your awe in the right place. You don't go looking for it somewhere else. Guys, if you're not in awe of these things that we've kind of just blown through this morning, I think it's just because we're not seeing God's radical grace towards us. Because we all know that as human beings, we sin, that we are broken, that we have our junk, yet we treat one another in ways that God doesn't even treat us, who He actually has it all together. He doesn't have any junk, and yet He treats us in this way. Guys, the measure of Christ's love for us is the depth of the sea. It's as far as the east is from the west. So I want to ask you again, what are you in awe of this morning? Meaning, what is shaping you? What, what moves you? What do you give your life to? What are you consumed by? Because think of it this way, if you're consumed by it, I propose to you that you're studying that thing without even realizing it. You're just staring at it, thinking about it all the time, all of its intricacies. I'm not talking about studying it like you study for a test, but studying it like I often say to you, like you would study a sunset. Or like um, someone overseas in the military would study a photo of their fiance. That kind of studying. You're just staring at it and you're considering all all the things that this is for you. How beautiful it is. Guys, this morning you are striving to be awed by beauty and I cannot dream up something more beautiful to place before your heart this morning. This will be on the screen. We're going to pray this over the next three weeks. Don't worry, I'll just pray it over you. Uh, But this is uh, something we call the gospel prayer. When we started the church, we prayed this a lot. And uh, for the portion of this sermon this morning, we're really focusing, we're really getting at the heart of the first two things on on this prayer. I thank you that in Christ, there's nothing I can do to make you love me more. There's nothing I have done or will ever do that will cause you to love me less. It is, his love is set upon you. And when you have that love, when you're guaranteed his presence, you begin to pray and you realize your presence and your approval are all I need for joy. It's going to be a fight for that joy a little bit. There's going to be a war for that awe in your heart, but it's there. So let me pray this prayer over us as we go into our time of response, of taking communion as Christ followers or praying with people who are going to be in the back for you, okay? Let's all stand together as I pray over us.
as a community of faith, as redeemed people uh, who are redeemed completely by unmerited favor that you just decided to give to us, God, in Christ. Um, we, we thank you that in Christ, that truly there is nothing we can do this morning that would cause you to love us more. And there is nothing we have done, no thing that causes us to feel dirty. There's nothing that we will do ever that will cause you to love us less. God, help us to believe this morning that your presence and your approval are all we really need for everlasting joy, joy that can't be robbed by the cares of the world. And God, we begin to pray today, just looking ahead even next week, that, that we want to be people that as you have been to us, we would be to each other, that we'd be conduits of your life. And Lord, as we consider and even at times question your compassion as we question even your power, as we're sent out across the city, I pray that we would measure your compassion by the cross, and we'd measure your power by the resurrection. And this morning, God, I pray that as we approach this communion table, that we would just see your feet walking out of the grave, trampling on top of our sin. Jesus, you are our victory this morning, and we worship you. Amen.